as you know, I was a, a vegan for four and a half years. Yeah, yeah. I saw a lovely, like a like it was like an eight-year-old telling a joke that was fantastic. Okay. And this is the joke. A vegan and a vegetarian jump off a cliff to see who will hit the ground first. Okay. Who wins? Everyone. Society. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Quiet, please. I thought that was so cute. It's like a little kid telling In the four, joke. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can three, get on board with that. Two. Company presents a truly terrible podcast. Welcome to Nonsense, episode number 48. I'm Jeff Parker. I'm Stuttle. This is our take on the week's business tech and entertainment headlines. This time, we'll look at sparkly diamonds. Those are delicious. It's National Pearl Harbor Day of Remembrance. On this day in 1941, the U.S. suffered the worst attack on American soil by a foreign country. The United States was in peace talks with Japan when Japan launched 350 warplanes. Wow. A lot of planes. In yeah. a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, home of the Pacific Fleet. We were in peace talks. Was it just a bad day? Did we <laughs> offend them we must have offended them did we serve the wrong tea what happened yes yeah we served the black tea we served the earl gray and like we only drink green tea we're gonna attack these fuckers 330 u.s planes and 19 ships were damaged or destroyed and thousands of people were killed or injured the unprecedented surprise attack precipitated the united states entering into world war ii as we sided with the allies and declared war on japan wow uh, did you know we were in peace talks when that happened I did. i've actually never heard that before I'm, I'm no student of history on these particular topics no sure i've never heard that before let me let me bring us to a brighter topic how's your week going well i'm not at fucking war with japan so it's better than that it's a low bar but sure isn't there like national paint your deck day or something that you can find are you not going to mention national pearl harbor day of remembrance are you going to not mention national chicken finger day i don't i just we start these things out like uh i guess it's just a nice low bar that we know we have to and then we can build everyone's all yeah we just build up from there (laughs) uh my week's going going uh, well good i'm feeling under the weather which is why i sound terrible we both sound terrible you sound okay i feel terrible i feel like you look is really what i'm getting thank you but i was excited i started the week excited because we came off our first ever listener appreciation day that we hosted which was so much it was a blast so glad that we got to do a couple of our more active listeners that are uh, give us lots of feedback uh, and listen to all our episodes and we decided to just do something for them because they've been so supportive so we took out to a laker game mr ryan i don't know how to pronounce his last name fiefer i think it is fiefer Fiefer, Fiefer. Yeah, there's a lot of Fs. Sure, yeah, so many fucking Fs. So we took him out as well as uh, Venkata Mutiala to a Laker game, and I just we saw a Laker Ryan, game. That's nice. Yeah, well, it was great. It was a lot of fun. They beat the Rockets. Yeah. I would just like Ryan to have an easier to pronounce name, like like Venkats. <laughs> that's all. That's all course. I want. No, it was a lot of fun, uh, and it was a good game. I've never seen. I don't go to a lot of NBA games. I don't watch, don't watch a lot of NBA games. Yeah. But I've never seen a, a coach ejected. Oh yeah. And the coach of the Rockets was ejected, and he uh, he did not seem happy about that. He was behaving particularly nasty. Both uh, LeBron and the coach got teased at the same moment. But it was the coach's second tee, which meant he got booted. I didn't I didn't appreciate that. Tees or technicals, yeah. is that right? Technicals, yes, that's correct. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, how was your week? My week's pretty good. The Los Angeles Lakers won their, speaking of basketball, Los Angeles Lakers won their in-season tournament quarterfinal game against the Phoenix Suns Tuesday with a score of 106-103. Austin Reeves saved what started out to be the most abysmal second half that I think I've ever seen. I think we were down 14 unanswered points. We were up going into the half. Wow. We were down before we ever got up. And wow. then Austin Reeves just came in and saved the game. Anyway, super, super fun. Really stressful. I haven't watched Lakers game 
in, in quite some time until I went to the one with, with you and our listeners. Uh, that Reeves guy is insane. Where did he come from? Literally undrafted. Literally really? undrafted. He was undrafted? Yeah. He went and tried out for the G League, which is our, you know, our, yeah, yeah. Our, and got on the team on like a, and eventually got on like a 10-day contract. They've started him on a two-way contract, which is basically no contract. You sure, sure, sure. Shortly thereafter that, he was so good that they actually moved him up to the Lakers, and he had a great season, and then uh, he had another great season after that, and I think he just made a deal between this season and last season, like a $60 million contract. This guy say, who went undrafted. Yeah, they should be paying him a mountain of money. He's insanely good. Oh, if he had gone someplace else, he probably could have gotten $90 million. He wanted wow. to be a Laker. Wanted to be a Laker. Uh, I don't mean for this to become the obit section of the program, but we have to note the passing of Norman Lear at 101. A groundbreaking TV producer smashed boundaries with politicized sitcoms such as All in the Family. He helped diversify network television with shows The Jeffersons and Good Times and used half-hour comedies to address social issues and taboo hot-button topics. I, uh, if you have not seen the All in the Family scene with Meathead and Archie talking about the right order to put on your shoes and socks, is that, is, it is a piece of to watch that? genius. All right. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. We should put the link in. We should in, definitely in put the, the link notes. in. Yeah. This was just slightly before my time. I mean, I knew of it, but it was just slightly before my time. Norman divided people into wet and dry. Marty Kaplan, founding director of the Norman Lear Center at the University of Southern California, said, Dry people were calm, cool, unruffled. Wet people were emotional and impulsive, and things get to them. Lear considers himself a wet person. He teared up. He joined causes. He acted on what he believed. His life was anything but dry. Norman Lear at 101. Let's get to our headlines. Uh, can I just say really quick before we move on? Was, uh, what was the, t- the article that I saw? Something like the passing of Norman Lear at 101. I immediately thought of the freeway. I was like, what happened on the freeway? No. What? <laughs> I don't understand. Somebody passed Somebody yeah. passed Norman on the freeway. You never get passed on the 101. You're all just stopped. He's 101. He's slumping He's down in the car. He's, the steering He's wheel's really down. high up above him. It was. <laughs> I keep making these things higher. No, Norman, you're shrinking. But how much of an of a Los Angeles site am I? Sure, Angelino. But like when literally you give me the number 101, I immediately think of the freeway. Of and course, Just of course. how stopped it is. 134 <laughs> transition. I would I would sell my kidney to get one more lane in that. Anyway, let's talk about some headlines. Google launches Gemini, the AI model it hopes will take down ChatGPT4. Yeah. As of yesterday, for English-speaking speakers in 170 countries, BART is now powered by Google's new Gemini model, which it says matches and even exceeds OpenAI's tech in a number of ways. BART is now running Gemini Pro, the middle tier of the Gemini series. Ultra is the biggest and slowest, but most capable. Nano is the smallest and fastest and meant for on-device tasks. And Pro it's right in the middle. It's meant to be the Goldilocks version of the model, fast and efficient while still as capable as possible. Does it also break into your house and sleep in your bed? It's it's the Goldilocks version, I mean, of course. Of course it can does. Can we talk about how weird that story is to tell children? Like, first of all, it's just such a weird story to tell children. First of all... <laughs> oh my gosh, all of them are weird stories. I know, and I like you don't really appreciate this until you're an adult and you're reading these to your kids. Oh yeah. First of all, bears living in a house that doesn't even make sense. They don't have thumbs. How do they open the doors? But fine. <laughs> They're making porridge... I'm is that true? Bears don't have thumbs? No, we're the only ones. Like, not opposable thumbs. Not like this. Not the, oh, okay. You know. They seem to be able to open car doors fairly easily. Well, yeah, because they use their giant fucking claws and their giant fucking paws. <laughs> they don't open them in a way that you can reclose the door. Oh, they don't? No, they don't walk up and be like, excuse me. I thought they just pushed the unlock thing on the on the phone. Do you have any gray poupon? I would like to, if I could just get in your back. <laughs> they fucking rip the door open, Jeffrey. They're bears, for Christ's sake. I don't go camping, so I don't actually well, see real bears. I only see the ones in cartoons, and they seem to be just delightful. Yeah, they are delightful, except when they get uh, stuck, their head stuck in the honey pot. 
that. That's then they're just sure. then they're just confusing. But then like so this if I understand the story correctly, this chick breaks into the bear's house yes. and tries their food, their chairs, and their beds. Yes. And then that's okay. Oh, but that story is positively delightful compared to Hansel and Gretel. Oh, that's not yeah. But there's uh, a witch okay. who's going to cook them. How did any of these stories make it into children's books? I had to explain to my son literally yesterday. He was asking about silk and where silk comes from, and I was like, Oh man, I don't want to explain this to you. Why is that so hard? They come from silkworms. What's the big yeah, deal? Yeah, you know how they make it? They spin it. No. It comes out of their comes out of their butts, right? No. Well, okay, yes, but I'm fine with that. The butt part I'm fine with. It's like a spider throwing a, fact, a web. But they take the silkworms and they fucking boil them. What? While they're still inside their Yes. Because otherwise, if you wait for the silkworm to become you didn't know this? No. You wait for it to become a to go through metamorphosis, it eats its way out, which destroys the thread. So they take them and boil the little fuckers and then pull the thread off. From their I cocoons. just thought we captured the threads out of their little containers. I just thought we, you know, we just yeah, you wound do. them you back up onto, them a, onto a nice spool. Like, oh, like whatever he's spinning out of his butt, we're just winding up behind There's a four-year-old it. silkworm trying to go through metamorphosis, smoking cigarettes. God damn it, Jim. <laughs> taking all the Fuck. <laughs> all right, I'll make another again. one. No, we literally, we boil the <laughs> This little guy fuckers. wants a robe. He's taking all my silk. Which, like, I'm fine. Like, okay, I get it. We've got opposable thumbs. We've reached the top of the food pyramid. We can do these things with other animals. But, like, is it worth it for silk? Are we at the top of the food pyramid? I think so. Who's above us oh i mean aren't there bacteria that are just ready to just wipe us out oh doesn't it seem like we're way below some of those things sure but i mean but like they don't get to you know listen to music they're just bacteria how do you know <laughs> Good point. Were we were we talking about AI and Gemini? Is that how we got down these four right turns? Bard is now powered by Gemini Pro. Pixel 8 Pro users will get a few new features thanks to Gemini Nano. Gemini Ultra is coming next year, but Pachai says the model will eventually be integrated into Google's search engine, its ad products, the Chrome browser, and more all over the world. It is the future of Google. These small models, what they're calling here uh, the Nano version of Gemini. I'm very, very bullish on these because you're going to see these running on the edge, right? On all your edge devices, so whether it's your phone, yeah. your watch, whatever. And that's that's pretty cool. The ability to do these things locally and quickly is is pretty awesome. And they'll just get smaller and smaller yep. as, as your phone get, memory gets bigger and bigger and power gets bigger and bigger. Do more and more and more with these things. It's going to be incredible. Pretty cool. There's a new iMessage for Android app and it actually works. A 16-year-old high school student figured it out. He reverse engineered Apple's iMessage, allowing any device, Android, Windows, whatever, to send messages as a blue bubble. That became the basis for a new Android app called Beeper Mini. Beeper Mini is not like other services out there. It's directly sending iMessages. Yeah, so for our um, our listeners at home that aren't as near to the metal at this as we are, the previous solutions for sending iMessage from a non-iMessage or non-iOS device yeah. has been through a proxy. So you basically end up with a bunch of like Mac OS devices, Mac Minis or whatever running in a Big farm. Big server farm of Mac, yeah. Mac, Mac Minis. And that is yeah. a really hokey-ass solution for, for doing these and iMessages. And super insecure because yeah. all your messages are being laid out in text to go Across so the what appears to have happened here is this kid went and reverse engineered all of the layers of bullshit that Apple has put on to try to keep this from being you know uncovered. It had to be a sixteen-year-old kid. Totally. Who else was going to have the tenacity? You need the to curiosity, this out. The, the, the the tenacity, not knowing all of the things that you would know otherwise of like, well, you know, this is going to get shut down. I'm never going to make any oh, money. Sure. And he just care about any of these things. Barreled forward, barreled regardless forward. Yep. of those things. I mean, that's just so. Imp- I love this part of this story. Yeah. It's fun. The best part of the story was how he told the folks at Beeper, he like I messaged, he DM'd the guy, I think it was like the yeah. CEO, and was like, hey, guess how I sent this? I can do this without yeah. the uh, server farm. Yeah. Absolutely impressive. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty fun story. You should you should read it if you're into this sort of thing. Can I just say 16-year-olds for the win? Absolutely. We jailbroke iPhones, then dove deeply into the OS to see how everything worked, then wrote new code from scratch to reproduce everything inside our Android app. Beeper doesn't see your messages, your contacts, your Apple ID password. It doesn't even need you to log in. It is, he says, 
just connecting to Apple services like an iPhone would. Yeah, this is going to be some real cat and mouse game. I suspect you're going to see Apple releasing a bunch of patches in the coming weeks for iOS and macOS. And this is going to be a cat and mouse game. This is even legal from the get go that you can use Apple services in a way that is not well, sanctioned by Apple. How's that? I'm sure it's a violation of their TOS. It's got to be. But if you never are in the Apple ecosystem, I mean, I'm sure they not sure. I am 100 percent certain they broke all the TOS jailbreaking this stuff, right? Sure. But like, how do you, what do you, how do you enforce that? And you just take their phones away? Like, what are you going to do? They'll, they'll do a cat and mouse game. They'll make some changes. It'll take them uh, days or weeks to make those changes. And then it'll take these guys months to years to figure it out. And they'll do it for a while and they'll stop chasing. Yeah. Them. If you know any, so it always happens. If you know anything about the Aaron Schwartz story, they yeah. can go after you for TOS violations and it can get quite yeah. horrible. Well, if you, if you exclude the DMCA, we give a decent amount of leniency for reverse engineering. The DMCA has really fucked that up for, yeah, for, for engineers, sure. especially for things that are encrypted. Well, yeah, that's the thing that they'll, they'll put on, you can literally put literally put rot 13 yeah. on whenever you want somebody to touch and be like, well, it was encrypted. It's a DMCA violation. Exactly. And that's fucking terrible. New report illuminates why OpenAI board said Altman was not consistently candid. Yeah. In an in-depth piece for The New Yorker, writer Charles Duhigg, who was embedded inside OpenAI for months on a separate story, suggests that some board members found Altman manipulative and conniving and took particular issue with the way Altman allegedly tried to manipulate the board into firing fellow board member Helen Toner. That's not how I heard it. What did you hear? I heard that they were looking, they're trying to figure out who was leaving the pods in the Keurig machine. <laughs> and they they asked Sam. And he kept saying it wasn't me. And he's like, it wasn't me. And then they got sure. video of it. And they're like, Sam, it's clearly you. And he's like, that's some AI <laughs> deep mind bullshit. That's a fake. Sure. You guys of all people should know that. You would you think. Know yeah, AI totally. I this. didn't do that. That's that's what I heard. Duhigg writes that Altman started to approach individual board members urging for her removal. In those talks, Duhigg said Altman misrepresented how other board members felt about the proposed removal, playing them off against each other by lying about what other people thought, according to one source. A separate person familiar with Altman's perspective suggests instead Altman's actions were just a ham-fisted attempt to remove Toner and not a manipulation. At the same time, Duhigg's piece also gives some credence to the idea that the OpenAI board felt it needed to be able to hold Altman accountable in order to fulfill its mission to make sure AI benefits all of humanity. If that was their goal, it seems to have backfired completely with the result that Altman is now as close as you can get to a completely untouchable oh, yeah. Silicon Valley CEO. Yeah, yeah, you fucking made Iron Man is what you did. I mean, he was already pretty For close sure. to Iron Man and then you made fucking Iron Man. So good luck. Microsoft's in there with a seat. Like you, Actually, they have the ultimate voice because they're the ones who are providing the compute yeah, for this thing to work. Exactly. I mean, look, you don't have the business. You're writing a big check. You're providing the underpinnings. Look, and I know they don't have a, a voice per se, but they're still in the room and you still have a voice in the room, right? I mean, they're going to find consensus. They're going to be able to steer this thing a little bit, protect their investment, yada, yada, yada. But let's back up a second. What Duhigg wrote here, at least what I've read yeah. around this being tied to Sam wanting to out a couple folks on the board and or, or you know get rid of Helen off the, off one the board in yeah one yeah. in particular man that is like on a scale of one to ten ten being the worst thing you've ever seen or heard from on a board child's play that's like a one and a half it seems awfully petty seems really like, nothing it's is this small. is this just their cop-out story where they're like well we really fucked up so let's just say that you know he was he was angry towards oh, Helen. I think this is probably really their story it's just kind of a lame makes story it even worse I think the Keurig story is better and they can they can use that if they want <laughs> they can use that you'll give that to them royalty free I think more people would understand right I think more people would be like oh yeah I get it yeah that I, mean, I get the Keurig thing He's sure, leaving no, the that's terrible. There. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, I don't. That's unforgivable. Too. Totally. Due to AI, we're about to enter the era of mass spying, says Bruce Schneier. An editorial for Slate published Monday, renowned security researcher Bruce Schneier warned that AI models may enable a new era of mass spying, allowing companies and governments to automate the process of analyzing and summarizing large volumes of conversation data, fundamentally lowering the barriers to spying activities that currently require human labor. All right. So full disclosure, I love Schneier. Sure. I followed him for the better part of you know at least two decades. The guy's a, a legend. While he writes some things that 
that I disagree with. For the most part, I'm, I'm aligned with him. My concern here is he's saying we're about to enter the era of mass spying. If you wrote that it's back... It's the about you're yeah. taking the objection to. I can it, hear it yeah, in your voice. Yeah, if you wrote this back in like, yeah, I don't know, January, I'd be like, oh yeah, it's coming. Now I'm like, sure. dude, how far behind it's are you? Here. Like, this is 100% already happening right now. Yeah. Maybe not at the scale that, that he's, you know, alluding to, but it's 100% happening. But maybe he's like RMS and he doesn't use modern computers when he oh, writes because of security reasons. Right, first so of all, he did this on a typewriter. Just, so we had to find some place to sell mean. the typewriter ribbon. It's just mean to put anybody in the same bucket as RMS, <laughs> right? RMS is on his, he's literally on the boat RMS, RMS, right? He's on his own boat that no one else should. The HMS, RMS. The a, sorry, the HMS, RMS. That's yeah, like, sure. I, I knew I had two of the three letters. But yeah, I think you got a little bit of, of maybe we're a touch behind. I mean, if you don't look at AI for two weeks, you are already a dinosaur. It is still a good piece. If you read the piece and if people don't know this is sure, happening, sure, totally. it's a good way of alerting the world, hey, look, this is going to happen. The, yeah. the spying is going to go through the roof yeah. and it's only going to get worse. We've had the data for a long time. We haven't had a way to you know, make a synopsis or analyze the data and get an output easily and quickly. And now we do. Yeah. I kind of like the idea here, though, of going, like we've talked about this before on the show about building a, a personality AI, like an AI that is your personality. Yeah. I could go buy like on the dark web, one of those private tarballs of you. Yes, you could. Feed it to an AI and then I could present you with your own AI. Cost you about 35 bucks. You can know everything I've ever done on the internet. Yeah, well, it was actually 25, but but I mean, oh. hypothetically. <laughs> It's um, a discount because it's me. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot less data. They're like, he doesn't really post a lot. But like, you could train up an AI. You could oh, yeah. build an AI persona of somebody without their without them doing anything. And I think that's kind of fascinating. That's an interesting idea. Mine would just make a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> That's all it does. They're not funny. Generative AI systems are increasingly adept at summarizing lengthy conversations and sifting through massive data sets to organize and extract relevant information. This capability, he argues, will not only make spying more accessible, but also more comprehensive. We should run our show through one of these summarized AIs and see what it comes. It'll just be like something, something, open AI, something, aviation, something, air traffic control. Oh, oh Hiroshima. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a Hiroshima in there because of you. Also, couldn't understand it because you idiots were talking at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could you learn to take turns? The AI has figured out sentience. No. Two of us talking at once, it's like too much. Too much. Slow it down. Catch his fire. I did have a listener. This is like the second best compliment I think we can get as hosts of the show. The best compliment being the folks that yell at us when we don't do a show on a week. I think that's sure. I think that's awesome. But <laughs> but uh, a, a new listener had said, I normally listen to shows at 1.5x, sometimes 1.25, but you guys talk so fast and you're so information dense that I slowed it down to 1x and I'm considering going slower. And I was like, yeah, sure. ah, that makes me feel good about myself, I think. Also, because both you idiots are talking, talking at, at the same once. time. Yeah, totally. I still think we should put one of us in like the left channel and one of us in the right channel just to really and just go for it and just confuse the shit out of people. <laughs> That's going to be some real podcast uh, advancements coming from nonsense. A thirsty generative AI boom poses a growing problem for big tech. A global rush for the next wave of generative artificial intelligence is increasing public scrutiny on an often overlooked but critically important environmental issue. Big tech's expanding water footprint. My understanding of this is that uh, this is like used for evaporative cooling. To cool the chips. To cool the, the chips. Yeah, the, the chips, chips don't run, run on water, hot. Jeff. Yeah, yeah, they're not, they're not water-powered chips. They're not drinking water this isn't kevin costner's water world they don't they're just, sweaty they they work really hard they sweaty. sweat and they need to stop and go grab some what, water what these chips need is ozempic they're clearly working too hard and sweating too much my understanding was a lot of this is is one is like reclaimed water or gray water two the water isn't going away oh for the data centers, for the data centers. Yeah, yeah for the data centers. water yeah, isn't going true. away the water is evaporating and presumably coming back to the water table it's moving i don't know miles or something like that going but, up as, as a, a vapor and coming back down as rain yeah. yeah so i don't i mean that seems to be valuable by the way it comes down clean what you've just done is laundered the water you, you have laundered the water yeah which is which is why there's a bunch of italians involved not a bad thing but 
they give these numbers without context. And this always drives me crazy. So in this article, they talk about how Microsoft is consuming something like 1.7 billion gallons of water. It's a lot of water. It's a lot of water. However, the average golf course uses something like 100 million gallons of water. Yeah. So you're talking about what? 17 golf courses worth of water? If you think I'm going to sit here and defend golf courses, you're talking to the wrong guy. I mean, think about a golf course. How, sure. mu how much land is required? Of how course. much water is required? So that a very small number of people, four at a time, yeah, exactly. can go whack a white ball across totally. the lawn. I think of this every time I see the beautiful golf course that Wynn built behind the Wynn Hotel in Vegas. And I'm like, you built that on sand and it has the greenest oh, sure. grass of any grass I've ever seen in my life. Your water use, you are draining the Colorado yeah. River yourself. Yeah, but, but no, you know what? ChatGPT is the problem. Let's go. Let's go yell at those guys. ChatGPT gulps 500 milliliters of water, roughly the amount of water in a six standard 16 ounce bottle. Well, yeah, it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to get uh, kidney stones. That's its big problem. I like that. Yeah. It's getting up there in age. Oh, no, sure. It's a couple months old. It's a dinosaur in, in AI days. It's super old. Data centers are part of the lifeblood of big tech and a lot of water is required to keep the power hungry servers cool and running smoothly. Yeah. We're going to get more efficient at this. Our chips are going to get more efficient. I know nobody's nobody's formulated this think, thing called Moore's Law, <laughs> say, but I'm going to go ahead and go and just jump out there twice and say efficient, it. maybe yeah, every 18 in, months or so. Yeah. It's going to happen. You, mark my take. words. Mark, just watch. You watch. My, my words will come true. Parker's Law. Parker's Law. Parker's Law. Since Gordon died, can I take over the Oh my God. The, you should totally take law. over. You should take over. Uh, okay, everybody. I called you here today. It's no longer called Gordon <laughs> Moore's Law. It's now Jeff Parker's or, Law. I mean, sorry, just do that moving forward. Who is this guy and why is he on stage? Okay, enough with the headlines. Up next, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite bling diamonds. Diamonds? Are, are we going to talk about any other slave related topics or just diamonds? <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Nearly a month ago, a 17.6 carat fancy vivid blue diamond named the Blue Royale sold for $43.8 million at Christie's Auction House in Geneva. The diamond is among the rarest ever to be unearthed. The global diamond industry, from the rough diamond mining to sales of polished diamonds encompassing both gemstones and industrial use, is estimated to be around $96.4 billion annually. That's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. This got me thinking, how did diamonds become a thing? That's a great question. Diamonds are formed under extreme heat and pressure deep within the Earth's mantle between 140 and 190 kilometers below the surface. They are believed to have originated from carbon-rich organic matter that was transformed over millions of years. Okay, cool. So we're down 140, 190 kilometers below the surface. How did diamonds get where we can get to them. Obviously, we can't get to them at that at that depth. Elevators. Little tiny the, elevators. The mantle people? We talked about them on the, la the last episodes. The mantle people bring them up. The short answer is volcanoes. Kimberlite magma forms deep within the Earth's mantle. The magma rises toward the surface due to buoyancy forces. As the magma rises, it undergoes changes due to decreasing pressure and temperature. The magma becomes less viscous and expands, allowing it to break through the Earth's crust. The magma erupts onto the surface, forming a kimberlite pipe. Diamonds are transported within the magma through fluidization. The magma cools and solidifies, trapping the diamonds within the kimberlite rock. Erosion wears away the surrounding rock, exposing the kimberlite pipes and the diamonds they contained. Fucking nerd. <laughs> I, there are at least four words in that paragraph that I don't even know what the fuck they mean. What is kimberlite? Kimberlite is a dark igneous rock that's found in volcanic pipes and dikes. And you expect me to know that. Meanwhile, I'll throw out an acronym and you're like, hold on now. We got to slow down and explain to everybody what AAA means. I'm like, it's the Automobile Club of America. How is this so hard? So yeah, no, you're right. Kimberlite. I should just know that. Okay. No, all, I'm, all I'm saying is it basically right. I'm the, dumb guy. the way we get them to the surface is volcanoes. They come up, they come up with volcanoes, which is all you really need to know. That's Vol pretty cool. Volcanoes 
Legos and mantle people. <laughs> what do they come up? What do they trade the diamonds for? Like Chick-fil-A? Like, we really want that Popeye's chicken sandwich. Can we have some of those? They wouldn't be wrong, by the way. They'd actually, <laughs> right? they'd actually be making a good deal. It'd be a good deal. The earliest known diamond mining activities date back to around 3500 BCE in India, along the banks of the Krishna River. These alluvial deposits, that is, deposits by flowing water, formed the erosion of the diamond-bearing rocks, yielding diamonds that were highly prized for their beauty and hardness. The water wore away the rock, exposing the diamonds. As diamonds gained popularity, trade routes emerged connecting India with other parts of the world. Diamonds were transported along these routes, including Persia, Greece, and eventually Rome. They were used for adornment and as symbols of wealth and status. So no, like, industrial use for them then. It was just, I'm going to put this on my crown. There probably wasn't right. a lot yeah, of industry yeah. going on. Yeah. Okay, so we found them a long time ago. Yeah. We traded them around because they were, presumably, there was a very small amount of supply that made them very, Limited supply, uh, and most of it, they thought yep. diamonds just came from India. They had no idea. In the 15th century, European explorers sought new sources of diamonds following reports of their abundance in other parts of the world, Brazil emerged as a significant diamond-producing region in the 18th century with its alluvial deposits in Minas Gerais. The most significant diamond discoveries occurred in South Africa in the mid-19th century. The first diamond was found in 1867, and the subsequent discovery of the Kimberley and De Beers mines revolutionized the diamond industry. South Africa became the world's leading diamond producer at its peak supplying over 80% of the world's diamonds. Did you go looking for them, or did they find you? Like, would somebody walk around being like, that's shiny, and then, then they would go explore? Well, typically, I think, yes, they're discovered, wow, that's shiny first. And then they say, oh, there's another one. There might be... And then you go dig around. And, a diamond yeah, okay. pipe here. There might have been at one point a volcano that brought these to the surface. Well, if you had a diamond pipe, wouldn't you just go turn it on? Wouldn't that be great? Diamonds were often seen as divine blessings bestowed upon humans by gods. They were believed to possess magical powers capable of bringing good fortune, protection from harm, and spiritual enlightenment. Diamonds were also associated with royalty and power, and they were worn by kings, queens, and other nobles as symbols of their status. In Buddhism and Jainism, diamonds were also revered for their symbolic significance. They were seen as representations of purity, clarity, and the indestructibility of the soul. Diamonds were also used in rituals and meditation practices, yeah. and they were believed to have power to enhance one's spiritual awareness. They even were thought to have healing powers. And uh, that doesn't work, right? What's that? The healing powers? Oh, no. You have an open wound or a gash. Just put a diamond on it. It'll see, just, seal it right up. It's great. Just rub a Abs diamond on Absolutely it? magic how that works. I'm sorry. That's the king's diamond. You don't get to rub that on you. No. <laughs> Diamonds are the hardest substance on earth, a property attributed to the strong covent bonding structure. The exceptional hardness makes them resistant to scratching, abrasion, and wear, ensuring their longevity and durability. By the way, when you buy a diamond, and one of the things they tell you to keep it nice is don't scratch it. With what exactly? <laughs> Always fun. Don't rub it on your other diamonds. Right. Don't just don't put it in your diamond drawer. <laughs> put it in your separate area of your house. It's the hardest natural substance, right? We've engineered things more hard than this. other kinds of diamonds. Wait, we're going to get to that. Am I jumping ahead? Am I doing to you what you do to me? <laughs> exactly. You're like Vantablock. That's the really dark stuff, right? I'm like, God damn it, Jeff. <laughs> Fuck. Diamonds exhibit exceptional brilliance and fire, the ability to reflect and refract light, creating a dazzling display of sparkle and color. Diamonds are chemically inert, meaning that they are resistant to chemical attack and corrosion. This property makes them durable and suitable for various applications, including industrial settings where exposure to harsh chemicals may occur. Diamonds possess exceptional thermal conductivity, the ability to transfer heat efficiently. This property makes them ideal for heat sinks and other applications where rapid heat dissipation is required. Industrial uses, diamonds are used for cutters and sharpeners of Abrasive, lab-grown diamonds can be used for what is called a super abrasive. Tech uses, diamonds can be used in quantum computing. Specialized semiconductors by doping lab-grown diamonds with impurities, heat sinks. 5G base stations use diamond heat sinks to deal with the high heat created by their high power requirements. I had no idea. Right. So now I can go there and, and not only steal their copper, but also steal their diamond. Yeah, and there's some gold in there you can steal too. 6G is going to have some uranium in it too, <laughs> just to round it out. You just get all your uh, aniums. In the mid-1860s, diamonds were discovered on the farm of Nick 
Nicholas and Derek De Beers, near what is now the city of Kimberley in South Africa. This discovery sparked a diamond rush, attracting thousands of prospectors to the area. How nice is it to just have like the family farm where you've got some sheep and you milk the cows. And happen to find some diamonds. And then one day they're like, hey, Nicholas, the land's covered in diamonds. Sure, sure. <laughs> like, oh, oh, everyone's going to know our name in a hundred years. Cecil Rhodes, a British businessman and politician, arrived in Kimberley in 1871 and quickly became a major player in the diamond industry. He formed the De Beers Syndicate in 1888, which eventually consolidated control of most of the diamond mines in Kimberley. Others like Barnaby Barnato and J.B. Robinson played a significant role in the development of the diamond mining industry in South Africa as well. In 1888, the De Beers Syndicate merged with rival company Barnato Consolidated to form De Beers Consolidated Mines. This merger gave De Beers a monopoly on diamond production in South Africa. De Beers used that monopoly to control the supply of diamonds, which helped keep prices high. The company eventually also developed sophisticated marketing campaigns to promote diamonds as symbols of love and luxury. So, okay, a couple things. Yeah, yeah. First of all, fuck you, De Beers, for making love and, and cash associated as one. Oh, yeah, uh, you're going to say that a lot more in just a minute. Oh, good. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to get oh, worse. I'm glad I'm sitting down. Uh, hold on, let me turn on my blood pressure cuff and see what happens. See if we can set a new high score. But also, I enjoy that they're like, uh, Company X and De Beers merged to form a new company called De Beers. De Beers. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then like, Company Y and the new De Beers syndicate formed to form the beer syndicate conglomerated and you're just like how many fucking times can you do this and just keep calling it the beers they just kept eating other companies and other they don't even things. sell beer which is the worst oh part. yeah they should shouldn't they? you think the company has expanded its operations to other countries and continues to control a significant portion of the world's diamond supply in the early days of diamond mining the cape colony government employed a system of indentured labor which allowed the recruitment of laborers recruitment is in quotes here sure of laborers from other parts of africa and asia these workers were often tricked or coerced into signing contracts that bound them to work for years in exchange for a small wage. So basically slavery. Oh, hang on. It gets worse. Indentured labor when I see that. Yeah. As diamond mining became more industrialized, the use of indentured labor gradually gave way to forced labor. Oh, boy. This involved the use of violence, intimidation, and deception to compel African workers to mine diamonds. Many of these workers were captured in raids or forced to work in exchange for food or protection. The use of forced labor in diamond mining was particularly widespread during the apartheid era in South Africa. The apartheid government used its control of the diamond industry to exploit African labor and prop up its oppressive system of racial segregation. Many diamond-producing countries in Africa still struggle with poverty, inequality, and violence, which can create conditions that make workers vulnerable to exploitation. In addition, the diamond industry has been criticized for its lack of transparency and accountability. It can be difficult to trace the origins of diamonds, making it difficult to ensure that they have not been mined using forced labor. Which, again, is ironic because uh, the diamond industry uh, being criticized for its lack of transparency when they do, in fact, sell the most transparent things on the planet. The Kimberley process has faced challenges, effectively identifying and preventing the trade of blood diamonds. Criticism has been raised about the process's ability to fully address the complex dynamics of conflict-affected diamond-producing regions. Man, that is, all, that is a bit, whole lot of words with a whole lot of dashes to just be like places that are uh, using slaves to dig shit out of the earth. To mine diamonds. Yeah, it's really hard. It's yeah. nearly impossible to police any of that. Yeah. The earliest recorded instance of an engagement ring dates back to 1477 when Archduke Maximilian of Austria proposed to Mary of Burgundy with a ring set with a diamond. However, diamonds were not widely used as engagement rings until the 19th century. You know what, Maximilian? Fuck you, buddy. Why didn't you use like a nice piece of coal? 
or something else. Just anything. Maybe some lima beans. Just something that we can get. Not a fucking diamond. Perhaps you could have used your wealth for something like, oh, say, feeding poor people. Yeah, exactly. Instead, you wanted to be a little ostentatious. However, diamonds were not used widely as engagement rings until the 19th century. De Beers created a 1947 engagement ring ad campaign around the phrase, a diamond is forever. It was so successful that by the 1950s, it was estimated that over 80% of American couples exchanged diamond engagement rings. Wait a minute, hold on. First of all, exchanged? In the 1950s, you exchanged? Like, I got one? And, I don't know if and, you got one, but your your betrothed would have gotten one. Well, they said exchanged. That doesn't, like, doesn't mean give to. I feel like there was a trade there. You know, there's a lot of other things that are forever. Like, for example, radiation. Plastic. 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 Radiation, oh my God. sure. Plastic would be great. <laughs> radiation is technically not forever, right? It has a half-life, but still, plastic is great. Oh. <laughs> a diamond is forever. So is plastic. Yeah, I was I was going to get you a diamond ring, but you know what? This this milk you container know really is going to last forever. a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> you just wear it around, and it's never going to break down, and no one's going to steal it from you, so it really is forever. I want to take one second and just stop and take a look at diamonds as an investment, because people actually do, for whatever reason, think that diamonds are investment worthy. Carrot weight, color, cut, and clarity. Clarity and color can be determined by trained gemologists with the aid of a loop. In other words, to the naked eye, the most treasured aspects of diamonds are undetectable. <laughs> Enter the Gemologist Institute of America and the issuance of certificates that basically say, you can't see this, but what you have in your hand is... A very small set of people may or may not agree that this is very, very, very nice. In some way, this is Great. useful. What the fuck do I care? If you look at it in, in... And I can't say this specifically with individual diamonds because there are very rare exotic diamonds that become famous and like artwork, they go up in value. Diamonds generally, diamonds in aggregate, hold their value worse than clothing. Isn't this basically the equivalent of like buying a super high-end handmade car? Like 50% of its value disappears the day you take it out of the store. Just gone. In the case of a diamond, probably more than 50%. Yes. Oh, God, that makes me sad. <laughs> Buy your wife a nice diamond, did you? Plastic. I should have got her plastic. The idea of synthesizing diamonds dates back to the late 18th century, but the first successful creation of a synthetic diamond occurred in 1954 by General Electric Scientists. GE's method involved using high pressure and high temperature, HPHT, to transform carbon into diamond. I mean, it's 1954. It's been less than 10 years since we got rid of the Germans. Yeah. And the fine engineers over at General Electric are like, what should we do with all of this free time that what we What should have? we spend our talent on now? <laughs> and some egghead in the back was like, I'm going to fucking make diamonds. Why not? <laughs> and then somebody above him was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to green light that. Yeah, 100%. Let's go. You Let's go, go make diamonds. <laughs> like, what a fascinating time to be alive. Over time, alternative methods for synthesizing diamonds emerged, such as chemical vapor deposition, CVD. I once had to sit through a chemical vapor deposition. It went on forever. The lawyers were terrible. <laughs> no, this is great. Your segment has a couple things in it already that are fascinating. One, it's about diamonds. Yes. And you may remember last week we talked about Stuart Semple and his diamond dust. And then the second thing is the way that they make Vantablack is using CVD, chemical vapor deposition. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like we planned this. Do we have a pre-production meeting and I wasn't there? Was it just you? I think we have yet to have a pre-production meeting. We have meeting. yet to have any meetings at all. CVD involves depositing carbon atoms onto seed crystal, gradually forming a diamond layer. Okay. This method allowed for a more precise control over the diamond's properties and increased production efficiency. Oh my God. So it's almost like they, it's almost like they engineered it. It's almost, almost so exactly weird. like they engineered as a, Wait, as opposed to letting it just randomly happen over millions of years in the mantle with the mantle people? They, they wanted to actually control how it occurred. So now I know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a member of the De Beers family, not yet at least. So basically I'm guessing they want all of these people to get hit by a bus because now you can take the quote diamond is forever that we found in the dirt using someone that we didn't pay any money to, to we actually made the perfect thing in the lab. Is that where this is going? Well, in the lab, they weren't perfect at all. In fact, oh. if you if you saw any that were made in the 50s and 60s, they were kind of yellow. They were good for like industrial uses, but they weren't very pretty. Okay. But the amazing thing was over time, the process got better. Sure. Technology. 
technology for the win. The commercialization of lab-grown diamonds began in the 1990s, primarily for industrial applications. However, as production costs decreased and technology improved, lab-grown diamonds gained traction in the gemstone market. Lab-grown diamonds offer several advantages over natural diamonds, including reduced environmental impact and the absence of ethical concerns associated with mining practices. They require less energy and water consumption to produce, and they do not involve displacement of communities or the destruction of ecosystems. Uh, you're saying I shouldn't water my diamonds. <laughs> no, they're using water to, to uh, you know, get diamonds to come forth out of the land. They're, they're using uh, water to oh, I see. blast away at the rock. Ah, uh, yeah, I see. That makes sense. Okay, now I understand. All these uh, lab-grown diamonds you're talking about, is this what a cubic zirconia is? Cubic zirconia is molecularly different a from diamond. a diamond. Okay. And, Our and diamonds. moissanite are the same thing. Moissanite's not diamond. Moissanite? These lab-grown diamonds are not zirconium dioxide. They're not silicon carbide. They're pure carbon, exactly what you're getting from a natural diamond. Chemically indistinguishable. Literally the exact same thing you're getting out of the earth. In fact, in many cases, yeah. modern lab-grown diamonds are of higher quality than anything you can pull out of the earth. Which, again, to me, not surprising, right? Because this is just a thing of that happens. Yeah, so I totally get that. But let's go back for a second. Did you say moissanite? Yeah. What is moissanite? It sounds like a French girl I dated in college. It's silicon carbide, super rare in nature, similar properties to diamond. We've been making silicon carbide in labs since 1891, literally two years before we discovered it in nature, in a meteor crater. We are good at synthetics. Again, there's a small number of people that might be able to tell. And as it turns out now, I bet these GIA guys can't even tell the difference between the lab grown and the non-lab grown. Or they just go, oh my God, this is this is much better. That makes it lab grown. You don't want that. It's worse than you think. Oh, Hang fuck, on, that's coming worse? Up. For industrial uses, lab grown diamonds now dominate, as they okay. should, because sure. you can perfect them in ways for industrial use where they're much stronger than than earth grown diamonds. And, sure. you know, much more perfect for the job. In fact, for things like semiconductors, you can make them really precise sure. semiconductor material, unlike so you're you can, taking some random size rock out of the earth and trying to cut it to some shape. Yeah, correct. Yeah. This is the right way to do that. That's really amazing they can do that. Since they can perform the same task for a fraction of the price, lab-grown diamonds are a no-brainer. But what about for gemstone uses? De Beers has historically been opposed to lab-grown diamonds, of they are. viewing them as a threat to their dominance in the natural diamond market. The company has lobbied against the use of the term cultured diamonds or synthetic diamonds, arguing that these terms are misleading and could confuse consumers. De Beers is also invested in marketing campaigns to promote natural diamonds and discouraging the purchase of lab-grown diamonds. Okay, that's a that's a duh. I like the terms cultured diamonds or synthetic diamonds. Cultured diamonds, they're just diamonds. It makes you think of oysters, doesn't it? Like the pearls, cultured pearls. No, when I get cultured diamonds, I think of like a diamond that that after it was in college, I went to Europe for a couple of years <laughs> and just hung out there and then came back. It talks with an Atlantic accent. It talks, yeah, it's a little fancy. <laughs> it like you always feel like it's a little better than the other diamonds. The way of it talks, it does, it's sure. just a little better, and it has a little bit of attitude. And it has a diamond mistress still back in Paris. <laughs> Continuous advancements in high pressure and high temperature and chemical vapor deposition technologies have led to the production of lab-grown diamonds with near-identical properties to natural diamonds, making them indistinguishable to the naked eye. Next, they were able to make them indistinguishable to the jeweler's loop. Yes. So, the jewelers had to create specialized machines designed <laughs> to detect what, a lab, what was and yes, what was not a lab-grown diamond. Fluorescence and infrared spectroscopy was used to distinguish between lab-grown and natural diamonds, but it's an arms race as lab-grown diamonds continue to improve. Totally. These days, reputable gemologists will use terms like most likely lab-grown 
own, leaving wiggle room as absolute detection grows more and more elusive. Also, watch out for sleight of hand yeah. diamond dealers who are pretending machines can still distinguish between the two. Yeah. Often these demonstrations involve using older, sure. inferior lab-grown diamonds. The tell, if you will, in lab-grown diamonds was the absence of nitrogen. In addition to nitrogen, lab-grown diamonds may also lack other impurities that are commonly found in natural diamonds. These impurities can include nickel, boron, and iron. These impurities make lab-grown diamonds stronger and clearer than natural diamonds. Most labs can now do doping, intentionally including these impurities <laughs> to make their lab-grown diamonds indistinguishable from gemstones. First of all, stupid. I, I understand. They're making an inferior diamond so that exactly. you can't detect it's, like, not, it's not natural. I really yes. want the one that, that someone had to slave labor over. Like, if sure. these labs could be run by people that were slaves, <laughs> then I'd be into sure, it. Sure, it's a lovely diamond, but I don't think it caused enough people to suffer. Yeah. If there's no indentured labor, I'm not really interested. I know it's more pure, <laughs> but if you could make it less pure and make someone have to suffer, yeah. then I'd be okay. Then I'd really feel elite. If you can't beat him, join him. In 2018, De Beers launched Lightbox Jewelry, a brand that sells lab-grown diamonds. I love it. That's smart. If someone's going to eat their lunch, it might as well be them. The company has invested heavily in research and development to produce high-quality lab-grown diamonds that are indistinguishable from natural diamonds. I get that their margin's going to change, but their option here is to still be a part of this, whatever this new oh, market yeah. is, or not. Right. And at least they seem to get that, like, maybe we should be a part of They're this seeing the handwriting on the wall. So how many diamonds, how many dug-out-of-the-earth diamonds has De Beers sold, in your opinion, that have actually been grown in the lab? Oh, millions. Wait, millions that they're representing? That, are you kidding? That were grown in the ground? Yes. But were actually done in the lab? False and forged certificates of all sorts are rampant throughout the diamond industry. You can pay more for a certified non-blood diamond, sure. but who knows if that certificate in any way reflects reality. A natural diamond might cost 10 times the price of a lab-grown diamond, but do you believe the little piece of paper that tells you the diamond is natural? Sure. Could the diamond that piece of paper represents have been swapped out at any stage in the distribution Chain. That's a silly. That's a silly question because you can just check the serial number. There's little serial numbers on the diamond. Yeah, when the mantle people make these three million years ago, they put little serial numbers on them. That's very, yeah. very thoughtful of them. I have number two. I just got lucky and found it. Yeah, I don't know what wow, number one. That's an is, early one. Number two. That's a very early. I one. I get that this whole thing, especially people in the middle, are most likely being like, I have a drawer full of lab-grown diamonds. Exactly. I have the certificate for this one natural, and I'm going to just photocopy it and use sell it, a bunch use of. It. These. By the way, you can you totally. can get uh, of course off the internet. You can literally yes. get bogus certificates. I, it's a it's a connection of computers i totally get it i mean you can it, it, it's probably easier to get one of these than to get a fucking license sure and those are easy to get but my question is is de beers doing this? i think there's no way for de beers to know i mean again de beers is buying diamonds from people who are mining them i mean okay de beers is getting diamonds from all sorts of mines even mines they don't own they have no way of knowing with modern lab-grown diamonds if they're getting lab-grown diamonds or if they're getting if they're getting natural diamonds they have no way of detecting that so you and i need to go get like a p.o box in monrovia and set it up as the as the Los Angeles mining company. Exactly. And we'll just start selling the beers and be like, oh look, we got a we got a legitimate office. Look, it's a WeWork space. One of the biggest manufacturers of lab grown diamonds is in San Francisco. Basically all diamonds are fake. Well no, very real, but possibly lab grown. You don't know. You have no way of knowing. But if your grandmother has a very, very old diamond that you've had in your family the whole time and you, you know, you've never taken it to a jeweler because the minute the jeweler is going to clean it, he can swap out that diamond with something else. That's part yeah. of the problem is, is yeah. there's so much dishonesty chain, in the industry. Yeah, of course. You'd have to literally keep an eye on the diamond the entire time in order to know that it's the same diamond you originally bought. But even that I've watched, you know, go to any street corner in Venice, Italy and watch guys play three card Monty. Me keeping my eyes on the fucking diamond. It's impossible. Do it's, impossible. it's impossible. Sure. So there are some very ethical retailers of lab-grown diamonds online, actually, and the prices are literally a tenth of what you would get if you were buying a so-called natural diamond. Yeah. Why are you buying natural diamonds? Still, uh, you want an inferior quality diamond. You want something with less clarity. 
I don't this know. This is crazy. But the amazing thing is that people will spend thousands of dollars, $20,000, $30,000 buying a beautiful diamond ring and they don't yet own a house. Yeah. Or, or they'll spend a yeah. fortune on a wedding and they don't yet own a house. Yeah. These are really important decisions you make, especially when you're totally. young before you have money yeah. that you might want to rethink. You might want to reprioritize how you're spending your money. In my case, uh, I, to show my love, I just drew a big picture of a dick and she loved it. I used crayons <laughs> that, and she was like, oh, I'm going to marry you. And I was like, wow, when you get your eyesight back, you're going to regret that decision. Yeah, no, what do you do? What's what's the what's the scarcity replacement? What replaces diamonds? Because I feel like that's uh, the way this is headed. I have really good dogs. You, you will want to marry me because my dogs are lovely. So we're basically, I don't know. We're basically going back. No, no, but that's a good one. You're basically going back to chickens. Yeah, but I'm not offering to give my dogs to you. The dogs <laughs> you, are still mine. You could just spend you can time just with scratch them. them. You can yeah, just totally, scratch them. Totally. Say not hello too to much. Them. Not enough for they like you more than me. <laughs> All right, we have to get out of here but quickly before we do. Have you seen or read anything good this last week? Well, speaking of darkness, yeah. let me take a little artistic leniency with the word good okay i will say i watched something that i feel like if you listen to this show you should definitely watch and that is elon musk's interview at dealbook so that was with the andrew um, andrew ross sorkin andrew ross sorkin uh, or jonathan or is, or is sorkin, he called him he, jo- he called jonathan him yeah over sorkin. and over which i thought was hysterical and i love that, that kara swisher won't let it go she's just calling everybody jonathan now which just makes so me giggle funny. there's a lot of sound bites running around you know depending on if you're a uh, elon pro elon or pro elon, elon or sure, you know course, whatever like people put out different sound bites watch the whole interview for oh, yeah, your watch own the opinion. whole thing it's one hundred percent nuts. It is just it's fascinating to watch. Personally, there are parts where I'm like, I get his point, and then I go, but the things that you're saying are kind of nuts. <laughs> like just, are a just little, loony or just like, madness. Dude, sure. I've, I've been around lots of people that are super fucking high, and that's the vibe I'm getting right now. That's like, exactly what I thought. He in fact I kind of I get it. Kind of felt like was Andrew Ross Sorkin doing the right thing, putting him on the stage high like that. He was out of his mind. Yeah. Now I'm, Andrew Ross Sorkin might not have known ahead of time. Even if he did know right and he was like hey, what's mean, his it, responsibility yeah for he said like Musk's dude like you're high as fuck and he's like i'm fucking great let's go right okie dokie i mean yeah. i just think the interview is fascinating i know i'm gonna wake up at 5 45 to text from a bunch of elon lovers zealots sure, sure. to the show that tell me that i don't understand him and you know he's really he's the next steve jobs he's the second coming he is harder to understand when he's on ketamine i am curious to see what earth thinks of our episode not the people of earth just earth <laughs> just earth. how about you did you watch anything depressing like that not depressing I saw something great. It's called The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti plays a cranky, curmudgeonly history teacher at a New England boarding school, forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. Alexander Payne makes incredible movies. If you've seen The Descendants, Nebraska, Sideways, this guy makes great movies. Dominic Sesha is a star. Wow. Just wow. See it now. The Holdovers in theaters now. I do want to see it. It sounds great. I'll have to add it to my list. That's the episode. Thank you for joining us for all of this nonsense. A truly terrible podcast from The Awful Company. Visit us on the web at nonsense.productions. I'm Stiddle. I'm Jeff Parker. If you like this program, please follow, download, subscribe, and like at Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, our favorite Overcast, or wherever you may get your podcast from. Podcastindex.org. Special thanks to our floor director, Carol Lee. Happy birthday, Carol. We'll be here every Thursday morning for more nonsense. Please join us. I'd like just one of these episodes to not be dark.